0: welcome to the buddha sasana podcast this talk was given by bhikkhu chendita in austin texas Last week, we talked about the structure of the sasana in the modern West and the historical roots of Western Buddhism. Today, in my last talk in the series on the Buddha sasana, I want to talk about the challenges in the West to developing a healthy sasana. First, we should understand that most modern Western Buddhism is folk Buddhism. This is not a bad thing since most Buddhism in Asia is folk Buddhism. McMahon's book on Buddhist modernism that I mentioned last week provides an excellent catalog of a broad range of so called Buddhist understanding in the West that, in fact, can be and is clearly traced to Western cultural roots, roots generally in Protestant Christianity in the European Enlightenment and Scientific Rationalism, in European Romanticism, or in Psychotherapy. Tanisaro Bhikkhu also wrote a book on the influence of Romanticism on Western Buddhism. Let me consider just one example of this kind. Such understandings constitute a uniquely Western folk Buddhism. A popular understanding in the West is that Buddhism is about freeing one's authentic or innermost or true self, or nature or voice or heart, a self that has been suppressed by social conditioning and other unnatural factors. But when unleashed, is the source of creativity, spirituality, virtue, and wisdom. This authentic self is typically accorded the following qualities. An authentic self exists independently of social roles, culture, and conventions. Social roles, culture, and conventions are oppressive to the authentic self. Creativity, spontaneity, goodness, and art are external expressions that flow out from the authentic self. This is known as self-expression or being natural. Spirituality adheres in the authentic self, while religion is found in external rules, conventions, and dogma. We must learn to trust the inner experience and inner vision of the authentic self, that which comes naturally, that which is true to ourselves. Although such statements have a long and venerable history, they have only a short history in Buddhism. In fact, this authentic self is far more metaphysical than what an adept Buddhism generally endorses. The idea of the authentic self does bear a vague kinship to practices of introspective examination in traditional Buddhism. But we would be hard-pressed indeed to find any of the rather specific statements just given, represented in Buddhist literature of any tradition. If the notion of the innermost heart does not have a Buddhist origin, where did it come from? The answer is from European Romanticism and its later expressions. It's found in people like Rousseau, Schiller, Schleiermacher representing the idea of human thought free from social constraints, from morality and wisdom coming directly from the human heart, from naturalness. The outflow of the inner self is often taken up in the art of the Romantic era. Such Romantic themes can be traced forward through the American Transcendentalist movement and through turn-of-the-last-century metaphysical movements where they played a role in the early attempts to comprehend Buddhism in the West, then later entered the American countercultural movements in the middle 20th century, which provided the fertile soil in which Buddhism began to take root in the West. To a great extent, the popular understanding of Buddhism in the West, that is, Western folk Buddhism, is a patchwork of many analogous understandings sewn in with some pieces of authentic Buddhist cloth. Meditation is remarkably central in modern Buddhism, for many as their single-minded Buddhist practice, alongside of reading some Dharma books, but neglecting devotional and ethical practices or the depths of Buddhist wisdom. However, this is not unique to the West. There have been also a number of adept-driven movements to popularize meditation in Asia among the broad and generally non-adept population with limited time on their hands. The most successful of these in recent years has certainly been the lay Vipassana movement, which started in Burma about 1900 with monastic encouragement, beginning primarily with a prominent monk named Lady Siero. Near the beginning of the colonial period, as a way of revitalizing Buddhism out of concern for its future under the British overlords. This movement has since gone global. To this day, Myanmar is probably the meditatingest country on the planet. A much earlier movement of this kind was associated with the Chinese Zen monk Da Hui Tsung Kao, who lived around 1100 AD, who promoted a method that we now call koan introspection. Koans, quizzical interchanges between teacher and student, had been a part of Zen literature and lore for hundreds of years before Dahui. The innovation Dahui taught was to use the punchline of koans as meditation objects, a method he promoted as a fast track to awakening, specifically suitable for lay students. Many of Dahui's students were apparently lay scholars and aristocrats who did not have the time and discipline enjoyed by monks for gradual practice. Significantly, once koan introspection seemed to produce desirable results, eager monks quickly applied their even greater reserve of time and energy for such concerns to soar to even greater heights. Koan introspection is now characteristic of Rinzai Zen and is now often considered primarily a monastic practice. In the 20th century, Japanese Zen master Yasutani Roshi revitalized koan introspection in the establishment of an explicitly lay school called Sanbyo Kyodan which focuses rather single-mindedly on producing breakthrough experiences through intensive meditation. The school became very influential in North American Zen ever since the publication of Philip Kaplow's Three Pillars of Zen. Although adepts will generally encourage meditation practice as beneficial, and I certainly do, the downside of any single-minded focus in spite of its gratifying results is that it does not produce a well-rounded buddhist it sacrifices breadth for depth while giving the impression of constituting a complete practice in itself in the west for instance vipassana meditation is commonly taught in a manner completely divorced from its larger buddhist context even from its integral role within the noble eightfold path Single-minded focus on meditation practice probably bears some kinship to the easy answer of single-minded devotional practice, such as reciting the name of Amitabha Buddha. Except one, it's not easy. Meditation retreats are a lot of work. And two, one would be hard put to say what the question is that it answers. Meditative experiences gain meaning only in the proper context. My intention here today has been to raise some alarms concerning the healthy development of the Buddhist Sasana in the West, which monks like me are charged with overseeing. But it's not to discourage. I would assess the current state of understanding and practice of Dharma in Western Buddhism to be comparable to the period in China that we talked about last week, during which Buddhism was not clearly differentiated from in indigenous Taoism. Nonetheless, we individually have excellent opportunities for Buddhist understanding and practice. The folk Buddhist understandings are still wholesome. They should not uh, they should just not be understood as all there is. Moreover, there are many excellent teachers in the West, lay, priestly and monastic both ethnic Asian and ethnic Western, who have a profound grasp of the Dharma, often supplemented with the advantages of a strong scholarly understanding in the Western sense. Mostly, it's important to keep a wide open mind, recognize that the scope of Dharma and its practice is properly broader than you think, and take refuge, which is to stay Open your heart and mind to the influence of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha before the influence of well-intentioned folk Buddhists. So ends our discussion of the culture of awakening. Next week, I want to begin talking about the art of mindful observation with some rethinking of the satipatthana, the basis of vipassanā. Satipatthana is a Pali word most often translated as foundations of mindfulness, though I prefer attending with mindfulness or simply mindful observation. The satipatthana sutta is probably the most studied discourse of the Buddha in all of the canon, is a firm basis for cutting through delusion and developing wisdom, for knowledge and vision of things as they really are, and ultimately for awakening. It has strong connections to the most profound teachings of the Buddha and to the contemplative faculties of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. In particular, we will discover how dependent co-arising in the way I've described in my book and in my podcast series is related to the structure of the Satipatthana and how an oft-neglected appreciation of the Buddha's teachings on insubstantiality or emptiness gives us a better grasp of what the Satipatthana is Teachings actually say. In preparation for this series, I've already put the English text of the Satipatthana Sutta online, along with an audio recitation. These can be found if you go to sitagoo.org/shortlinks/satipatthana. That is. S I T A G U dot org slash shortlinks S H O R T L I N K S slash Satipatana S A T I P A T T H A N A slash I would recommend giving it a read or a listen before next week's adventure. Till then.